0: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. On this week's show, it is part one of a four-part special, Nerdy V10s. In this special series, we will embark on the journey to rediscover F1's past. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to Nerdy V10s, where we talk anything and everything to do with the classic era of Formula One. Today is our very first show, and I'm delighted to say that to help unpack some classic Formula One eras, we are joined by the renowned F1 journalist and former Five Live commentator, Maurice Hamilton. Maurice, welcome to the show. How are you? Very well, James.
1: Nice to be here. Thank you for asking me.
0: My pleasure. Uh, We're also joined by uh, two regular uh, Cut to the Race podcast panel members. We've got the wonderful Sam. How are you, sir?
1: Yes, I'm all good, thank you. I'm all good. How, how are you doing today?
0: I'm very well, thank you,
2: sir. Thank you. And uh, James McKenzie, how are you? Uh, I'm all right. Apparently not wonderful, but other than that, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You are you're, you're <laughs> still
0: you're still wonderful to me. Sir. Well, thanks. So, just to give our readers a bit of a background to yourself, Marie, so I'm going to do a bit of a, a bit of a This Is Your Life moment. So please forgive me, but uh, you're a close you were a close friend of the legendary Murray Walker. Uh, you started covering F1 in 1977. And you've written over 30 books now, including biographies of Nicky Lauda, James Hunt, Eddie Jordan, Frank Williams, Damon Hill, uh, 50 Years of McLaren Racing, which is on my Christmas list, and also uh, Incredible, the tribute to to Tomorrow, which I have now read from cover to cover and was brilliant. You've also spent time as a journalist for The Guardian and The Observer and The Independent, as we said as well, a former Five Life commentator. So you've kept yourself busy in the F1 years, haven't you?
1: I've been very, very lucky, James. Um, I've managed to... Since 1977, when I quit my job as a as a salesman selling plastic underground drainage, would you believe, um, and and became a freelance writer, I managed to maintain the freelance status throughout. And uh, that was difficult at times, obviously, because you know you, you you're on your own. But I wanted to keep that. I didn't want to get. I got offers of of full time jobs with magazines and so on, but I didn't want to be tied down if I could possibly manage it. And I have managed it, actually. I've been I've been clear of that. I've been a freelance all the way through. And it's given me this scope to do a lot of the things you've mentioned, uh, time to write books, uh, time to accept. I never intended to be a broadcaster, never, ever, ever. I, I just love writing. That's what I love doing. And I happened to be in the right place at the right time, keeping a lap chart on what was then radio t- uh, the, the, the light program, I think. God, right back to then. Um, but Radio 2, that's right. Uh, With Simon Taylor doing his lap chart and um, up in the commentary box, because then I could see the race from the commentary box and and hear what was going on. And uh, they, they were expanding the program to the point where they wanted a second voice. And he turned around to me and said, do you fancy doing it? And I said, yeah, why not? And so suddenly I'm a broadcaster. But that really was, you know, I find that quite hard at times particularly doing the main commentary bit, which I did for four or five years, which I didn't particularly enjoy. I enjoyed being the summariser, the guy who came in with the the wise comments, wise in quotes comments, um, and all of that. But the the broadcasting, really, my, my main love was and is writing. So I've been very fortunate to do all the things that you've you kindly outlined, yeah.
0: Well, it has been one one career. I mean, if we can move quickly on to... Onto the driver aspect of things as well. Our first, our first sort of main summary question is you've seen F1 develop since the seventies and we've had drivers like the, yeah, the iconic James Hunt and the Jules Villeneuve, Nikki Lauder. They morphed into the senna's and the Prosts. Then we had the Schumachers and the Hackenons, and now we've got the Hamiltons and the Verstappens. So, how do you think the drivers have developed over the course of the last the last 40 years or so? and what skill sets do you think they need now that maybe they didn't need back then or or maybe have some skill sets been lost? Where do you think the difference now is with these drivers compared to uh, compared to when you first started?
1: The environment that they're working in is vastly different for obvious reasons because in in the late 70s, early 80s, if you just look at the simple act of driving, uh, it was clutch gearbox heel and toe, uh, all the rest of it, double clutching, and all the rest of it. Manual gearbox, and nothing else to complicate matters in the cockpit. And now look what they've got. Um, it's incredible the stuff that they have to do. They're going so much faster. Um, the the G forces are greater. But back in the day, the dangers were much higher, and uh, and uh, it was the car was much more lively, which I actually quite enjoy when you watch film of old stuff and you see the car sliding and drifting it's just incredible i mean i think downforce has been the curse of, of, of motorsport but it's there you can't uninvent it it's come so you you have to deal with it so i think the answer to your question is that while the the environments as i said are vastly different their ambition their will to succeed their skill to to drive what they've got to the maximum capacity to speed, which when you're spectating by the side of the track are are eye-watering, that hasn't changed. So while um, James Hunt might have been cornering slower than Lewis Hamilton, definitely cornering slower, he was actually working harder in some respects, the way he was controlling the car, sliding it, using the throttle, and having to brake and change down in a different manner. Now, I mean, the braking is phenomenal. I mean, I've stood at the braking area going into the first chicane at Monza. So they're coming towards you at just over 200 miles an hour. And they're braking in an unimaginable area, 120 meters, something like that, from from 200 plus miles an hour down to 60. It's just, you cannot take it in. Whereas before they would be arriving early and you would see, they would brake early, you would see the nose of the car dip you would, you would you have a better sense of what they were doing and how they were managing the corner. Today, it's very, very hard when you're standing at the inside of a corner to, to see who's different. They all look the same because, of course, the times now are so much closer. That was the other thing, in that the grid uh, back in the day would be separated by six or seven seconds. There would be huge gaps between the guys. Now it's nothing, which I think is phenomenal in a way. I mean, absolutely incredible that they are covering, let's say, three and a half miles and separated by tens hundreds of a second. That, I think that's fantastic, but very, very different. But the end result is the same. They're all trying to do, they are the very, very best at what they do. They're just doing it differently, but they are the best and they are way, they're they're they're, they're superhuman in my view.
0: Yeah, it's, it, with each generation, yeah, the drivers kind of reinvent themselves. Um, and but do you miss those kind of icons from the past? Like, as James says, the James Hunts, the Gilles Villeneuve's, um, or, you know, do you have an appreciation for, for the modern
1: athlete as well? I think, uh, and this is going to apply to you guys, i warn you now, uh, in 30 years' time, when you're looking back on your careers now and how this Formula Nerds has started, and you think, oh, do you remember how we started back in the day? It was really so small. And look at us now. Here we are, multinational corporation, all the rest of it. But you're you're going to look back on these days now with a, in, in, with a certain... Yeah, there is a rose-tinted aspect to it because it's wor- it's how you're growing up. And that is going to mean the most to you. So it's same same for me because, uh, I mean, I I've spectated. My dad took me to a race when I was seven. So I've been a, a, a fanatic and motor racing spectator since then. And Jim Clark was my hero and I, I watched them race from the fence at Silverstone. So I, I will obviously appreciate them and I've got fond memories of them more than I have today because... Today, of course, uh, the, the the environment that they're working in, as I said before, is different. But it's different not just from driving, but also the way they're having to work. You don't see them, you know. They they are they get out of the car. They've got a debrief. They go straight into these vast motorhomes of smoked glass doors. You're not allowed in. You can't talk to them. Whereas back in the day, um, there, there was no such thing as public relations. There was no such thing as a team having a press officer. They just didn't have one. So if, for example, uh, I wanted to interview James Hunt, say Autosport said to me, can you do an interview with James Hunt uh, about whatever the topic might be? I would hang about the paddock gates waiting for him to arrive on the on the, on the Friday, see him march in, usually with a girlfriend on the arm, and no managers, nothing like that, and say, hi, James, how are you doing? Okay, listen, I have, to, I have to do an interview for Autosport. You wouldn't mind giving me some time? No, no problem, old boy. Yeah, okay, come and see me after practice this afternoon. And you might see him. The downside of it is that you might not because he'd forget and go off and be doing something else. Whereas today, of course, it's all regimented. You would get a 10-minute slot if you're lucky, and the driver would have to be there because the PR person would be with him. But the the difference back in the day was that if he did turn up, it would be just you and him. There would be no press officer hovering over his shoulder, putting a tape recorder on the table, and inhibiting him because he's thinking, oh, I've got to be careful what I say. Whereas back in the day, it would be you and him, and if he trusted you, which was the whole thing, was to build up trust. That was what it was all about, the trust between the two of you, that he had to trust you. And he would say, listen, this topic that you, you're you asking about, what well, I will say on the record is this, but look, off the record, and then he would tell you something, and he would trust you not to print it. That doesn't happen now because they don't say that because the, tapes, the tape recorder is on. So, so, therefore, I'm going to look back on that time much more favorably than the regimented period that, that you have today. That's just natural. That's the way it is. Uh, I, I am going to have better feelings for those days, so I'm going to look up. I mean, Alan Jones, for example, world champion in 1980. What a great bloke, fantastic bloke. You go and have a beer with him, no problem. And he would just tell you uh, how, how things were, which of course wouldn't happen now. You'd see them at the airport because they would be on the same flight as you. They wouldn't have the same executive jets, and in some cases, they'd be flying economy because they, in those days, there was no business class; it would be first class. <laughs> an economy and generally there'd be an economy and they wanted to be an economy they, they didn't like being up front on their own they'd come down and mingle with the mechanics and the lads at the back of the plane all having a beer and in those days a, a cigarette which you could do in those days so just so different so you'll, you'll understand why I say yeah <laughs> I really enjoyed that.
0: Oh, oh completely and and you you mentioned Jim Clark obviously, and not to, to lead the witness as such, but would you say that he's the greatest that you've ever seen race, or you know, would you would you give a different answer? I appreciate that's quite a difficult question over you know lots of years yeah. of
1: the sport. Uh, indeed, Sam. I mean, I get asked that question loads. You know, who's the greatest? I don't know, because you cannot compare different eras. They've got different jobs to do. In the days of Jimmy Clark. Uh, you know, in, in '68, for example, six or seven drivers were killed. I mean, not just in Formula One, but there were Formula One drivers doing other things, which they did in those days. Ludovico Scarfiotti doing a hill climb, for example, Mike Spence at Indianapolis, and it just diff- just different days. Uh, Jim Clark was was my sort of, again, going back to this this idea of what you guys are going to think in 30 years' time. I mean, I was coming in, and and, and I was he was my hero. In a word, because he was the guy I most wanted to be. Because he, he seemed he was so unbelievably quick. Uh, and yet he, he got out of the car and he was shy and he was like you and me, you know. He uh, he was no airs or graces, um, just a lovely guy. Where I really was impressed by him, apart from what he was doing in a Formula One car, was in those days they would I'm particularly um I'm thinking of there's a there still is the gold cup at Alton Park. Which back in the day was for non it was a non-championship Formula One race. So in those days we only had fourteen Grand Prix, maybe fifteen at the most, and there would be non-championship races, which the teams would all go to because it was a kind of test session. And some years we had as many as five non-championship races. Now, in those races, the Gold Cup being one in particular in September, August or September of each year, uh, the, the support race would be touring cars. And Jim Clark would drive a Lotus Cortina in that for fun because he could because that was the way and jim clark in a lotus cortina i have never seen anything like it in my life unbelievable at old hall the first corner just completely sideways and just smiling and, and just enjoying himself having it, and, but his car control and because he did the rac rally once and really did well until he hit a tree unfortunately but um you know he, he's he got natural skill and he yeah he will obviously be for me be and he made it look so easy that was the thing. I mean, he just so relaxed the wheel and the fingertip control, uh, everything about him. So, yeah, for me, he was the greatest. But but then again, I I also, uh, when I'm doing a list, I also put Sterling Moss at or near the top because although he didn't win the championship, what that guy did in every conceivable type of car, I'm getting back to that topic again, I suppose, but but Moss was phenomenal in, in that he was better than Fangio insofar as Fangio was maybe the better Formula 1 driver, but Moss was the better all-round driver in that he did everything. He raced everything. And he did the Mille Miglia in 1955 which, with Dennis Jenkins a 1,000 miles around Italy and the 300 SLR Mercedes, where they averaged just under 100 miles an hour for the, the 1,000 miles. Unreal. I mean, that had that well, never been done before and will never be done again as it stopped in 1957. But, but Moss, I think, was superb. Yeah. Moving on, Senna breathtaking I saw I was lucky enough to see him do do pole position at Monaco Uh, I was right down at the swimming pool the first chicane going into the swimming pool when it was 88 he did that unbelievable lap that Prost couldn't even believe and I was standing there and there was just something you knew was coming because we're getting the final minutes of qualifying and you knew he was going to do it and he comes around in the slow lap and you're waiting 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 and he appeared out of tobacco. And the car, the only way I can describe it to you is the car was dancing. I was, it was at my eye level and it was dancing across the road. It was shimmying in and out of control almost, you know, like that. And out of sight, gone. And the, and the huge big grandstand behind me, there was just a collective <gasps> intake of breath. And then there was quiet while everybody waited for the, for the uh, announcer to give the lap time because you didn't have anything else to tell you. And he announced it. And the place went bananas. I mean, and when, and when he came around then in the slowing down lap, everybody stood up. There wasn't mad, frantic, oh, like scoring a goal, cheer, cheer. it was just... Just respect, just kind of... Respect yeah. and wow. <laughs> that is something. And I was standing with a guy called Michael Kranifas, who was the head of Ford Motorsport at the time, and Mike was just standing there beside me, and we both looked at each other, and he said, well, he's American, I'll try and do an American, he said, well... Now you can tell your grandchildren you saw Ayrton Senna win pole at Monaco, and I thought, yeah, you're right. Mm. So that was special, and there's lots of them, lots of examples like that.
2: Yeah, no, I mean I'm, I'm sure uh, you mentioned Senna. Uh, I mean the FI has come for a lot of criticism over 2021 and other decisions, but the early 90s were, of course, full of controversy. Controversy, as you're likely to remember. So, what are your thoughts on Senna and Prost in in 1989 and the disqualification and and where we are now with the FIA?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, That was a fantastic couple of years. I mean, it was just, as a reporter, as a commentator, it was wonderful to cover because it was all going on and the tension inside McLaren, where Ron Dennis Mm -hmm. doing his best to keep everything cool, was extraordinary and you knew it was coming. And I was actually standing. Uh, overlooking the chicane um, at Suzuka because uh, I wasn't doing commentary for that. I don't know why, maybe BBC wasn't doing it, uh, when they had the collision. And I mean, Frost was pretty clumsy, I have to say. He was, he was, um, you know, he, he, he closed the door a bit, bit too late. But Senna was going for a gap that was going to close anyway. So it was kind of 50-50 and, and Senna, Prost had the measure of him that particular day. He really did. He set the car up so he had the speed and he, he actually got ahead of Senna at the start. And Eric was doing everything to get by. And in the end, he he, was, he just left us breaking really, really late. And Prost had said to him before, if you try it on, if you try because because Prost maintained that Senna's attitude was, I'm coming through, and if you don't let me, we're going to crash. So Prost gen- generally got out of but this time he didn't. So he had that collision. So that was you know, 50-50. What disappointed me? and uh was in 1990 the, certainly the FIA um bales were out to get Senna, the way they wouldn't move the pole position having agreed to which which did his head in and and quite right because it would have been agreed and they wouldn't move it prost had the the the, advent, the advantageous side of the grid even though he wasn't on pole i think the sad thing the thing that i again I but by this time I was doing the commentary i, I definitely was doing the commentary in 1990 and we've been building up the tension be building up all weekend and we knew it was all on the two of them on the front row sending the Ferrari, sending the McLaren-Prost and the Ferrari I we thought this is going to be great this is really good and we we're really looking forward to talking it all up bang it's all over the championship's done before the first lap's even completed the sense of anti-climax that's all I remember was oh no that's it it's done it's a good point
2: actually you know we all look back on it and think oh you know this incredible moment but yeah at the time I guess it's, yeah that's it it's just it's done is it
1: because you're looking for, you know, what was it, 45 laps around Suzuka. Wonderful, wonderful track. Great battle you're going to have between these two. Bang, it's all over. Oh, no. What? And so you're doing the commentary and say, well, that's it. Erton's in his champion. What Ayrton did that day was very naughty. You know, to drive into the back of somebody just, I, in my view, um, was 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 not on. Um, but he'd been provoked, no question about it, by Ballest Was Balest was out of hand. Balest was just so political. Um, and uh, was favoring Pross, no doubt. so I can understand why I did it up to a point but not to do that going into down the bottom of that hill with like, 23 other cars or whatever behind them barreling into that corner at high speed and, and causing a collision uh, for me it was 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 not on the, the the governing body the FIA was very strange very lax um and of course then Max Mosley took over and he was quite the reverse he, he for Mosley, who was a former barrister, uh, the rule of law was everything and things changed for the better, I think, in many respects. Max had his problem as Phillips, but boy, did he sort things out. So, yeah, that was very, very messy, 1990 at Suzuka, and, and very, very disappointing.
0: <laughs> well, I can remember watching Murray's commentary on that day. Uh, it's iconic when when Senna hit Frost. And I just want to if it, just talk about your relationship with, with, with the great man. I mean, in in incredible his warmth his kindness the fact he always knew what to say at the right moment and just how loved he was really comes through and I just want how did you meet Murray and how did you cement a friendship that would that 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 you had for so many years
1: you wouldn't believe this but I actually first met Murray when I was a page and Moy punter going to the Monaco Grand Prix with my dad in 73 and it was uh, at out Luton Airport, um um a charter flight, which Paige and Moy put on, and Murray happened to be on it and he and the seats were three by three and he sat beside he happened to draw the unlucky ticket, I'm afraid he sat beside me and my dad. And so we got talking to him on the on the way down. And my dad was just I was so excited about this before we even got to Monaco, you know? Uh, so, and he was just lovely. He just chatted away as if he knew us all his life. And and that was the way Murray was. But obviously, I reminded him about this many years and he didn't remember and I didn't expect him to. So, when I became a journalist, it, it just, with Murray, it was just a natural thing. He would walk up to me and say, I can't remember exactly where it was, but he would say, Hi, I'm Murray, as, as if I didn't know. I'm Murray Walker. Welcome, I hear you're now going to write for The Guardian. Nice to have you on board. and uh, anything you want to know? And just so helpful and kind. And he would be at any any function that you went to, Murray would always be there. You knew you could start when Murray arrived because, yeah, okay, we're all set. Murray's here, it's good. He was so enthusiastic about everything, everything, every conceivable aspect of the sport. And you know what? It 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 had it's had it has its downs. It has moments where it's not so good. But Murray didn't see that. Murray would uh, just get it. We, I remember we 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 would do the odd race, uh, which was a bit tedious, you know. And we'd be sitting in the media centre. I'd be busy then, having done the commentary on, on a dull race, trying to write a report for whoever it was, the Guardian or the, uh, probably and um murray had bounced into the media center having got to go well wasn't that great and everybody go what (laughs) but for murray it was great it was great because he loved it it was just there was some aspect of every race that he enjoyed and he was just a genuine enthusiast and a genuinely lovely man you couldn't help but be enthused when you're in, in his company
2: yeah and that obviously came across perfectly in his commentaries uh but yeah, uh, for, for maybe the younger listener or, or those who may not know, obviously there there was something known as the Murrayism where he maybe slightly slipped up along the way. So what was your favourite Murrayism personally?
1: Um, God, there were so many, weren't there? Um, I, <laughs> uh, let me see, hang on. I mean, I've got the, I happen to I've got, by the way, the book's out in paperback tomorrow. So, oh, good man. I oh, you got the hardback. <laughs> Um, I mean, when I was doing them all, when I was putting them together, but I was just, I was just laughing at every single one. Um, they're all, they're, they're all good, you know. Unless I'm very much mistaken, yes, I am very much mistaken. Or, um, oh yeah, there's nothing wrong with that car except it's on fire. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but I think the one, if I can find it, the one where he said, "Oh yeah, this one, this one," and this is this is Maria. This is Maria's wait. There is no doubt in my mind that if the race had been 46 laps instead of 45, it would have been a McLaren first and second. But it didn't. So it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That's fabulous. Only Murray could say And he says it genuinely. I mean, he's not trying to be funny. You know, he's not, he's not doing it for effect. It's just the way he was. It's just the way he talked. It's enthusiasm. I think part of it was driven by the fact that he made copious notes throughout the Grand Prix weekend. I mean, pages and pages of notes. And when you went into the, if you went into the commentary box, these notes would be plastered everywhere all around the place. And he had so much information, I think, that he would be trying to get it all out to you, you know. And that's when you would get these steps of the time because he was trying to share. He wanted you to know, the listener, to know, the viewer, to know. all come out in a blur. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I'm just reading one, actually, as well. I just found, I just found one about Shimaka. Where was it? Uh what's what is it uh michael shinata's car is absolutely unique except for the one behind him which is identical yes just brilliant yes. I just, you just, I just, <laughs> it's just fantastic <laughs>
2: Kroger Fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.
0: You obviously have your own experiences from from within the paddock. Of those, are there any particular overriding memories for you?
1: You mean just generally the paddock generally, or with Yeah, well, well, in in, in general, yeah, you know, from your time working in the sport. Oh, it's lots. I mean, it just so many because I'm very privileged to have a media pass, which which got me into the paddock. The holy of holies, um, I, I really appreciate that because when Bernie took control, then he stopped it. I, I can go back to the day when at Silverstone, for example, you paid a pound and you got a paddock pass and you, you could go in. You could and you would rub shoulders with the drivers. Um, whereas then Bernie came in and he stopped all that. And but, but whereas I then had the pass which got me in, so I was in this this holy of holies. And by the way, just talking about the the the. The ability to go into the paddock before Bernie, and you would see Graham Hill, you would see Jim Clark, you would see them all there, and you could you could almost touch them, but you wouldn't interfere. And just what made me say this was you probably read about what happened in Mexico when they had big problems with the fans. They were they're trying to get more fans in, which is nice. Mm. I'm, I'm in favour of that. I think that's good, but it's gone too much the other way. Because of the celebrity that's been bestowed upon them by Netflix and all the rest, which in ways is good and in other ways bad, it's got too much. And people don't have the respect anymore. Whereas you would find that back in the day, all the fans would we would all stand around the, the Team Lotus truck where they were working on the cars. And nobody would interfere. Nobody would dare to even... Uh, somebody might ask for a, an autograph if the driver came near the, the rope. But that would be it. Whereas today, I mean, it's bedlam. It's madness. So. So the paddock, the paddock in that respect has changed. So then, when Bernie took over, and it became quite impersonal, and uh, and so on. So we, I suppose, um, before before we had PR and the rest of it, and you could see the drivers, you could go and have a, a coffee with them, and so on. It would be, yeah, it would, it would be much more relaxed. Today, it's it's not relaxed at all. I mean, I went to the Dutch Grand Prix at Zandvoort. I haven't been to many recently, but I went to Dutch Grand Prix at Zandvoort because I love Zandvoort. Uh, one of my favourite circuits. and I wanted to see how much it had changed. And in many respects, the actual circuit, apart from additional grandstands, is still the same wonderful place, wonderful atmosphere, easy to get to, I love the whole thing. But in the paddock, I didn't get... I did, the paddock had to be split in two now because it's so big. You, you couldn't get the existing Formula One paddock into where the old one used to be, it's just too small, that, that area down to the Tarzan hairpin. So they have to put uh, a separate one for hospitality so that kind of splits things up anyway but I never saw a soul I didn't see I saw drivers riding bass on their bikes they had push bikes to get from one paddock to the other but you you had no chance to talk so you know that that, and I thought well that's the way life is and the 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 guys that are covering it now they just accept that which is fine that's that's what that's what life is that's not a problem I don't have any problem with that but for me you know it seems so different um I, I think One, one race that if you're talking about emotion, um, I mean, obviously there's the seriously bad emotion of Imola in 1994, which is is one extreme, which was just absolutely horrible, dreadful thing to deal with. Um, on the other end of the scale, anytime you have a world championship settled, the paddock's wonderful, you know, I mean, I've seen some wonderful moments when the champions are celebrating, I've been very fortunate to be there and, and say like Damon Hill at Suzuka in 96. Uh, I was right there, right there. Cause I had to get the whole, I was ghosting Damon's column for him. And I had to get, <laughs> it was quite funny because, um, I was doing the commentary for five live and the commentary box was on the other side of the circuit and Damon wins the championship. And I know I've got to get to him to, to get my tip going. So I can then sit and ghost his column. But I also know having won the championship he's going to be besieged. And If I don't get him quick, I'm not going to get a decent column. And the guy I'm worried about most is a guy called Carl Heinz Zimmerman, who ran the hospitality for Camel and for Bernie then. And Carl Heinz had a tradition in that the newly crowned world champion had to smoke a cigar and drink a glass of schnapps. Because Carl Hines is offering. And I knew he would be coming to get Damon to do that. And I knew that Damon, as all drivers, they're fit, they don't drink a lot. You give them a sniff of alcohol and they fall over, you know. And I thought, my God, <laughs> I've, I've got to get go there quick. And, and when I came down the steps at the back of the paddock, Murray's already got to Damon first. I know. So Murray's doing his interview. And then I see Carl Hans coming around, all the mechanics coming around. I think, oh, no. And I tried to get Damon, and I mean, he was almost incoherent. <laughs> 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 it was impossible. So you've got that, but that wonderful buzz. Jensen, when he won the championship in Online Lagos, oh, my goodness me, the atmosphere in that wonderful little narrow paddock. It was bedlam. It was crazy. Uh, but you, 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 you've got this mix of excitement because you're in it, but also uh, worry because you've got a job to do. You've got to get your quotes. You've got to write your story. And for Brazil, the deadlines are even tighter, you know. So you've got, you've got all of that to do. But sorry, getting back to, to atmosphere. The one that uh, I remember most uh, from the point of view of atmosphere was the United States Grand Prix and uh, when they had the very first big event after September 11. In the United States, the Grand Prix happened to be the first major public event. And uh, where there was talk of Formula 1 not going. You know, we said, no, no the people... I remember Michael and Ralph Schumacher saying, no, we don't, we don't want to go, it's too dangerous. And luckily, fortunately, we went. And I have to tell you, it was the most emotional day at a race I've ever had because the place, when you drove in, you gave your little American flag and everybody had one. And they had the Indianapolis school choir singing on the podium. And They had the American national anthem. And it, and it was, they, they, the whole country was trying to come together after this. Devastation two weeks mm. before, and Formula One played its part, and I, the hairs, the stand up in the back of my neck. Now I'm thinking about it. I mean, it was incredible, absolutely, and it's a theatre of motorsport anyway. The IMS the Indian, in Indianapolis Motor Speedway, so it was just an amazing, amazing occasion.
0: I can remember watching that race, and I can remember watching the national anthem being said. Um, it was a very distinct atmosphere, and I don't think one that will be repeated again. It's just one of those one-offs, but for our last, uh, our last topic, Maurice, our last question, it's something we ask every guest who comes on to any of our podcasts and it's called our motorsport time machine. So if you could go back to any year, any part of motorsport formula one, what would you, where would you go and what would you do?
2: It can be, it can be past or future as well.
1: Oh, okay. Okay. Um, uh, that's so hard. Um, my my, my favourite race, the one that um, had a big effect on me, and I'd love to see it again, um, was before I actually became a journalist, when I was still just a, a fan, was the 1969 British Grand Prix at Silverstone. It was the greatest race I've ever seen because uh, I was in the grandstand at Woodcote with my dad and it was uh, for an hour and a quarter... Jochen Rindt and the Lotus and Jackie Stewart and the Matra went wheel to wheel. I mean, they went at it like I've never seen before, but not in a tense way. They, they were good friends, huge respect. They were passing and repassing, but they were on the edge, the two of them, for the entire hour and a quarter until the rear wing on the Lotus got damaged against the wheel and Rindt had to make a pit stop. I've never seen anything like it because in Woodcut in the old days, this is the old Silverstone, so they were coming flat out underneath the bridge used to be the Daily Express bridge and into Woodcut at about 170 and you never knew which one of them was going to appear first you didn't know because they'd been passing and repassing down hangar Street and we were on the edge of our seats for an hour and a quarter we just didn't move it was phenomenal and they they left everybody but the guy finished third I mean they were that far they just left everybody standing because they were the two top men, two different cars two different styles of driving. Massive respect for each other, but they both knew they were going for the championship that year. And as Rint was trying to get get it and Stuart was trying to get it for the first time. That's right. And it was mega, mega race. I mean, phenomenal. So I think I would like to go back and and experience that again. And also experience how it was in 69. Because in 69, the Lotus truck and the Tyrrell truck would have been side by side on the on the gravel paddock. And there was no garages. You had to they had to work in the cars and then take them around the end of the pits and up into the pit lane. There was no through way. I remember we had breakfast in the cafe at the back. It was a cafe where you go in for your bacon and eggs and there would be drivers in there. Um, and, and mechanics and everybody in the whole, and we were, you know, we were camping across the road in a, in a tent across the road. Well, the Jordan <laughs> factory now, I, or sorry, Jordan, was it now? Aston Martin. Aston. Factory. Yeah. factory, yeah. <laughs> factory is. Um, we were camping in there, you know, in a field. uh, just, yeah, I think I would I would love for old time's sake to savour that atmosphere, but to watch that race again. I'd love to see it. Because, and as I was saying at, at the beginning, the cars are moving around. I mean, they were on the edge. You'll see pictures, if you look them up, of them coming through the old uh, Beckett's Corner, which is just a fast right. And you'll see them both, because the cars rolled much more than they do now, they were on the edge with both a touch of opposite lock-on, power sliding. Ah, brilliant. Yeah, it looks... <laughs>
0: That sounds epic and that to me is formula one at its absolute finest when you have two people going at it hammer and t- hammer and tong really close racing but fair on the edge in two different cars that for me is what formula one should be right. uh, but unfortunately that is i think all we've got all we've got time for thank you so much for joining us Maurice. it's been an absolute pleasure thank you so much for your insights and your your stories they're fantastic thank you so much
1: it's been a pleasure guys and very good luck with your website and all you're doing good luck to you cheers Thanks thank you as for, thank well, so for joining much. us it's been brilliant Thank okay. you very much, James, for having me.
0: We? Or yeah. all. Well, and if, uh, as, as the great Murray Walker once said, unless I'm very much mistaken, I am very much mistaken. That is the end of the show for today. Until next time, thank you and goodbye. You're listening to the Cut to the Race podcast. It's lights out and away we go. Away we go.
1: Sports Social Podcast Network.